2 Kings chapter 5, a classic, a favorite, a VBS story, dramatic elements that uh, will spark anyone's curiosity meter. There are uh, a bunch of characters in the story. There's good dialogue in the story, unexpected details, and it pushes us to view this as like a story. Uh, we treat it like that, the good plot line that you need to follow and take in all the details, and you're going to have you're going to have flashbacks, or I guess I should say flash-forwards, maybe, uh, because a New Testament believer will read this story and think of Cornelius, will think of Ananias and Sapphira, will think of the prodigal son story. It's kind of in here, uh, maybe in reverse. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, you'll think of um, other New Testament figures as we go through the story, because there's so many, like, uh, allusions, not allusions, but they're just kind of similarities with other stories. So you take a note of a couple things as the story starts. It's already been read so well a moment ago. Neither, neither king of the nations, either Aram or Israel, are named because they play really no role in this story. I guess maybe you can kind of go back and figure it out if you want to historically, but the story leaves their names out. It's like they are totally insignificant. They play such a small role, and it tells you that there's no political... Uh, um, advantage in this story. There's nothing politicians can do. In fact, for most of life, that's true. Most of life, that's true. The politicians can't do much for you. I think sometimes we complain to them and sometimes we elect them thinking that they're going to save our lives. But listen, most of the time, politicians can't do much. And in fact, most politicians should be like the king of Israel in this. They should just be overwhelmed with what they do, go sit in sackcloth and ashes for a while, right? That's what they should do. This is just kind of like politics moves aside because politics doesn't help at all. But you get the sense that God's after this guy named Naaman. He's been after him for a long time. Look at verse 1. Naaman, um, and he, he uses so many things to capture his attention, but he's commander of the army, so he's a powerful guy um, of the king of Syria. He's a great man with his master, so apparently a good friend of his, in high favor uh, the Lord had given him victory over uh, for Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. All these great details are piled up. And then at the very end of the sentence, end of verse 1, gives kind of the trump card. Boom! All this good stuff. But by the way, he had leprosy. And none of that stuff can help him. None of your power, none of your prestige, none of your good favor, none of your connections None of that's going to help that last line. He was a leper. He had a disease that no one could take care of. But here's how you know God was after him. How did he have victory for the Syrians? Now, this is not the people of God. These are, these are not people of God. He's over the Syrian army. But who had given him victory in all his battles? Look at the verse. The Lord had. That word, all caps, Yahweh. Yahweh had blessed him with the ability to lead the Syrian army to victory, and in fact, victory over Israel, God's own people. So the Lord is not just given, it's not like he's going to help cure him here in just a little bit, as you know the rest of the story, and God's going to say, hey, ta-da, here I am. God's been after him after a long time because he's given him these victories, and he wants him to know that God is the one who's granted it to him. It's an, a great detail, and it would probably be rather bothersome for the Israelites to read this, because He's battled God's people and won, and it's by the power of Yahweh that he's done that. And in the course of this, as you know, 
He captured an Israelite girl. I don't know how old she actually was. doesn't say. But captured this girl, and this girl uh, is serving Naaman's wife, and Naaman has leprosy, and she says, Oh, I wish, I wish you could go see this, not king and not priest. I wish you could go see this prophet in Israel who I know could heal you. That's an enemy woman taken into servitude who then says words of help to Naaman. Naaman listens to this little girl. The king of Aram listens to this little girl because she speaks up to his advantage. It's an amazing thing. I don't know, maybe sometimes, uh, maybe sometimes you're, you're disappointed you don't have a more po- powerful, influential position. You'd, you'd like to have a little more significant job or something with a little more right, you know, charge to it. This little girl just simply serving her mistress, as, as the text says. And she speaks up and she bears witness to something in Israel that will bless this man's life. And so she remembers the Lord, she remembers the prophet, tells this, and gets this process going. The king listens to her, Naaman listens to her, and off he goes with a letter to Israel. And he, t- he has off t- uh, to, uh, to the king. And the king has no idea what's happening. We're going to pick it up where the, the reading left off. He went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. So uh, notice all the stuff he has. Prestige, connections, political power, clout, high character, all that stuff, all that, and even all the money you can imagine, and none of that helps him with leprosy. None of that will fix you when you have this disease. He is completely in poverty, made that way by this disease that's got him. This is a lot of money. He has this king. He takes the letter with him. Notice this money. I think I put this verse in here. Next screen. This is talking about Omri, the king, before. He bought a hill of Samaria. He bought the capital city and turned it into the Samaria capital of the northern tribes. And he bought it for two talents of silver. This man bought a city for two talents of silver. And this man, Naaman, is sending ten talents of silver uh, to be cured of leprosy. This guy is floating with money, sending enough money to buy cities in order to find a cure to this leprosy. This guy is pulling out all the stops. That's what the text is telling us. That doesn't even include the other material or the gold that's with him. But money, as much as you'd love to have it and as much as you could acquire, can't fix leprosy, as we've been saying. So he presents this letter. So we join me at verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read this way. When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And the king's mouth drops. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he says, Am I God? Do I kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure this man of leprosy? Only consider and see, he's trying to start a fight, right? He's trying to start a war. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard about this, that the king of Israel torn his clothes, he sent to the king and he said, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman was sent to Elisha. Elisha's gonna save the king here. Elisha considers this like an evangelistic mission opportunity. And here comes Naaman 
What's interesting about this, what Great Commission says, we are to go and share the, the message with other people. But in this case, God sends a foreigner back to Israel. It's much like if you were having refugees sent to us from, 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 from a former country. I know that gets politically weird, but you picture this, that God sends a bunch of refugees from another country into our area. It's almost like God's saying, listen, you don't have to go. I'm bringing them to you. Now you do something about it. And that's what Elisha views this as. He arrives at his doorstep. Elisha doesn't even come to see him. This great man who everybody in his country would drop everything to go see and visit with, he comes to Elisha, and Elisha doesn't even get up out of his recliner to go meet him at the door. This is quite offensive to Naaman. So here we are, verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh shall be restored, and you will be clean. Naaman was angry and went away. He was going to stalk off and have a fit. Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. I, I thought he would come out here and do this great ceremony and show the, the, the great medium that he is, that he's the agent through which God's going to act and he's going to do all this stuff. You know what I think of about healing? I can't get Benny Hinn out of my head. Does anybody else have him in there? If somebody's going to cure me of something, if a, a person actually had, I'd expect them to come up and hit me in the forehead and I'd just fall out. That's what I've always seen in movies, right? And that's what I've seen Benny Hinn do. And he's done it like at the pyramid. I remember when I was at, uh, at Harding for a year and he was at the pyramid and he came and that's what he did. I didn't go see it, but some did just to be entertained. Personal involvement. He wanted the pomp. He wanted the ceremony. He wanted, he wanted this impressive display so that God could be, you know... I, embellished there was none of that that's his first objection Elisha just gives him instruction and that's it and he's angry about this and then he has objection number two are not the Abana river and the far 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 par river the rivers of Damascus far better than the waters of Israel don't we have better resources cleaner water melted Snow from these mountains come into this river. Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he walked away in a rage. I, I, I would much rather have these resources. It's weird how something so simple that could restore him to health, and he's fighting against it because he has this imagination, and he has this idea that his land is better. There's a third objection, but he doesn't say it. His servants know he's got it. And they start arguing with him. His servants, verse 13, came near and said to him, My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. This is a great opportunity. He says you'll be clean. Will you not do it? Has he actually said just wash and be clean? I think what they're saying is he's, he's thinking he needed to do something to contribute to it. He would do something great, go on some kind of pilgrimage or do something mighty like this mighty warrior commander could do. And it, it would do something, but he doesn't do anything. He has no contribution to make. Nothing he does, no kind of journey he takes or mission that he fulfills is going to fix this. All he has to do is dip in the Jordan seven times. And his servants reason with him. 
So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of a man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He was born again. He was like a kid. And he was clean. Don't fight it, just listen. Now here's what's interesting to me. People today object to baptism as essential for salvation because we're calling it a work. He was mad because it wasn't a work. Isn't that weird? There's nothing to it. There's nothing to it. And so I, I don't want to do I want to do something might no, no, just just listen to what he says. I don't know why God chose dipping in the river seven times as the instruction. I don't know why he did it. It seems clear though that he just wanted to see if he would obey what he said, regardless of what it was. I think God wanted something that was absolutely disconnected to anything that Naaman brings to the table. And know that it's God doing this. It's not even Elisha, his prophet, doing this. He has nothing to do with this. He never even saw him. And Elisha never did actually anything except give him the words. Yes, God's after Naaman. He's been after Naaman, I guess, for years, giving him victory in all these places. He wants him, but that doesn't mean that he wants him on any basis whatsoever. And I wish people would appreciate this in our world today. Everybody acts like God is just so giddy about getting people, he'll take them on any standard they want, even the standards they themselves come up with. God wants everybody, but he wants them on his terms. He wants to know, are you going to obey me regardless of what the command is? Are you going to simply do what I say? Naaman's angry about this. As a valiant man who's legendary in his own homeland, he turned to walk away. And yet the great words, his, I have to give him a little bit of credit. He at least listened to his advisors when they said, listen, you're stubborn and all this, at least... At least just do what he says and see what happens. And he listened. He wasn't so stubborn that he wouldn't listen. He did. And exactly what Elisha said would happen did. So he returned to the man of God, much like, do you remember another leper who went and did something, Jesus said, was healed and came back to him? Anybody ever heard that story before? You see the New Testament illusion, right? There's 10 lepers. One comes back and gives thanks to God. That's what this guy did. He, he returns to the man of God and all his company. He came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, this is what's amazing, is he was more than physically clean. I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. This is not like, I, I, I believe in the God of Israel. He healed me. He says, There is no God anywhere else than yours here in Israel. So accept a present from your servant. Because he's God, accept this present. But on that same basis, he refused to take it. Because there is a God in Israel, he lives here and he's real. I'm not going to take it. So, then comes the real quandary of the story. The real details that are just kind of bizarre. Naaman is okay with him not taking the gift, but he wants two more favors. Favor number one is... Let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. Now that's weird. What do you need a bunch of dirt for? 
right? What do you need the dirt to visit? They're kind of geographic. They think God is located in certain geography, right? But he's already said there's no God in all the earth but him. Listen to this verse from Exodus. Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. I didn't give you an image. I spoke to you. You shall not make gods of silver. So don't create anything visual because I gave you an audio message, right? From heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. You shall make for yourselves no gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice it on it, your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. Just, just give me an earthen altar. And I'm thinking... He's using his reasoning as best he can. And here's Naaman saying, I'm going to go back to my native land in Syria, and I'm going to, I'm going to use this dirt to build an altar, and there I'm going to, I'm going to know I'm, I'm worshiping and serving and offering only to the God of Israel. That's, that's favor number one. Here's favor number two, and this is a little more difficult for me. And may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there. He's going to have to take his boss who's a Rimon worshiper. And when I take him in there, he's going to be right by his right hand. He's going to be leaning onto my arm. And I bow myself in the house of Ramon. And when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Forgive me for walking in there. I'm not going to be worshiping him. But I've got to go in there and go through the motions because I'm with my boss. Now this is, this seems so contrary to what like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, make the trumpets and all that stuff and bow down. No, we're not going to do that. And that's the valiant thing. We expect them. Stand up for your faith. But in this case, there's no real issue with this. There's no one forcing him to engage in false worship when he goes through it for the sake of his employer, his boss, his friend. His mind is not going to be engaged for Ramon. It'll be engaged with the God of Israel. And for whatever reason, I can't explain this, except that it's a different circumstance altogether, Elisha says, go in peace. And so he leaves. When Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is everything okay? And he said to him, all is well. My master has sent me to say... There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give me a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. What is going on with Zahazi right here? If you hear his language, he saw this as an opportunity that Elisha should have taken. Should have taken to get back at Syrians to get back at this enemy of Israel. You have spared, my master has spared his life, this name in the Syrian, this name in the, he's, he's with contempt thinking of this person. He had him in his grip to be able to take some vengeance, and he didn't. That's kind of key number one. This is kind of missional here. Key number two, that word spared him is a big word. Elisha says back to him, was it time to accept money and garments? 
He comes back, and what he does is, uh, just to make this a little shorter, is that Gehazi gets home, sends the servants away, hides his stuff, and then he goes into the presence of Elisha, thinking that somehow he could fool him. And Elisha says, huh, was it time to accept money and garments and animals and all that stuff? What does that mean, was it time? This is going to make you think of Paul in the New Testament. If you recall, Paul, when he went to a, a, a church to preach or something, he refused to take any money from them. I will not take pay from the, the church I'm working with because I don't want there to be anything that obstructs the, the message, message from getting to them. I don't want the fact that I'm getting paid for it to alter in any way how they receive the message. So he might take money from other churches, but not the one he's working with. And he says this clearly, and that's what Elisha's saying. It wasn't the time to do this. This was a free thing. This is God working with them, not us. It was not time for us to do this. And so because of that, the leprosy that Naaman had falls on Gehazi and his family for the rest of his descendants. Now, what is the point of this story? I mean, it's a great story. It's an imaginative story. Two messages I can think of, and one of them is this. Obey God. God's looking for obedience from people, and not just his own people. He's looking for obedience from people. And you may never have leprosy, but there is one universal disease that affects everybody. There's one problem that everybody has, and no matter how much money you have, what good a job you have, what looks you have, whatever kind of connections you have, it doesn't matter what it is, you're in deep trouble and you can't fix it yourself, and it's called the problem of sin. It's kind of the universal equalizer. You've got this problem. What are you going to do about it? There's nothing you can do about it. And so God just says, you want cured of this? I'm willing to cure you. In fact, I want all people to be saved, but I want to do it on my basis. And so he says to us, he says to us, here's how you do it. Obey my gospel. I want you to obey this. I don't delight in the sacrifices and, and, and burnt offerings as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. And this includes coming to Christ. It includes staying in Christ. Being people who obey the word of God and just listen to what he says and submit to him. And this is why when that famous passage in Acts chapter 2, when they finally say, what are we going to do? We're guilty. What are we going to do? And, and, and Peter says to him, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the promise for you and for your children and for all who are far off. I just want you to do this. And it's amazing to look at the religious world and how they resist a simple obedience to a simple command. Kind of like Naaman. And I want to reason with people. Isn't it great, the word he's given us? He's willing to forgive you of your sins. He's willing to let that, that, the obstruction of your sin be completely removed and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to help you walk in him for the rest of your life. Isn't that an amazing statement? Just do what he says. Just do it. And the second thing I think is the share God part. He wants us to share God him with the world we need to go into the world those who say hey you know we got this money kind of uh, you know when the building gets paid off we got this extra stuff we know what are we going to spend it on some of it needs to be on going some of it needs to be spent on going now i don't i don't i'm not one of these that says everything needs to go but listen when it's all on us 
when it's all just, uh, just, you know, us feeding ourselves and having a good time and having parties all the time, and that's all we do? There's a problem with this because God says, I want you to go. Now, in this case, somebody came. Somebody actually came into Israel, and it was a chance to show God off, and that's exactly what Elisha did. He stepped out of the way. I was talking to Matt Walton this morning, and he talking about him leading singing, and he said, I want to be as invisible as I can be. I don't want anybody to even know about my role here. I just want to be able to be used to help people sing and then lose sight of me. It's a great idea, and that's what Elisha did. He just kind of stayed out of the way, let God have all the press. We need, we need to be missional. We need to share him with other people. And in this story, it's very clear, God's after Naaman. You know who else God's after? Who does God want to be saved? Who does God want to have a knowledge of the truth? Every single person. He's involved in their lives and he's pursuing them. Whether they recognize it or not, God's pursuing people. And he certainly wants his people to take their cue from that and us to pursue other people. Naaman lived a long, long time ago. But the reminder he provided is even valid right now that our God is after people. He wants people to be his. He's leading them, but not just on any basis whatsoever. He doesn't just on whatever he wants to, you just come to me. No, no, no. He says, I want you, I want you so that you can obey me. Has he gotten to you yet? Have you obeyed him yet? Have you done what he asked you to do yet? Because he wants you. I know he does, but not on any, on any basis whatsoever. It's on the basis of obedience to him. And like in the days of Naaman, I mean, the command you may not understand all the time. When it comes down to the baptism question, like the water that's right behind me, it's still a command, just like it was with Peter in Acts chapter 2. It's the promise that's for all of us who are far off. This is the means of obeying your God and coming into a relationship with him. Forgiveness of sins and gift of the Holy Spirit. And this evening, if for whatever reason you've put it off and you've put it off and you've listened to these other people who say, oh, you just need to do this, I need to do this. Don't, don't listen to other people, just listen to God. Just simple as that. And we want to we wanna be kind of like, I guess those servants of Naaman remind me of another Bible character. Her name is Abigail. It's who we named our daughter after. If you remember Abigail in the Old Testament, David was, had 400 men with him. They strapped on their swords and they got on their horses and they were riding down to take it out on Nabal. They were going to absolutely destroy a bunch of innocent people because they mistreated them. And as he's riding down on the way to the slaughter comes this lady, beautiful lady on a horse. That's what I think, Abby. She's a beautiful lady on a horse. And she's got cheese. Cheese. I don't know if it's cheese or not. I've just always viewed it as cheese. She's got food, she's got bread, she's got a couple of lambs, a couple of sheep, a couple of pigs, whatever. She's got it all loaded there. And she meets David halfway down and reasons him out of doing something really stupid. And these servants of Naaman reason him out of being unnecessarily stupid in his anger. Our job as a church is to reason people out of thinking that God can just accept anything on any basis, but also on turning away from something so very simple. Just obey what God says.
That's your marching orders for the week. And if there's anyone here who's never responded before, I don't know what you're waiting on, but whatever it is you're waiting on, we are urging you to reconsider and do the simple thing God asks us to do. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's so simple, and yet it means turn away from everything that you thought was right and just do what God says. And if you're ready to do that, so are we as we stand, as we sing together.